What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. The British people have had enough of waiting. The time has come to act. People are really angry out there. They're angry that the referendum's not being carried out. But they're even angrier that politicians' promises to them have been broken. Given how huge this decision is for our country, the severe consequences there will be for generations, it is time to put this back to the people and stop this Brexit chaos. We will do everything necessary to stop a disastrous no deal. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. So, uh movement really between the EU and the UK absolutely fast paced uh, you know look away from the screen and you miss it it's now too late for the Brexit deal to be formally approved by leaders at their summit in Brussels on Thursday and Friday that's according to one EU diplomat yeah the focus now turning to a possible second summit to get all of this sorted out every time I leave my desk I come back to a barrage <laughs> of headlines I've then got to get my head around so if you're listening you've made the right choice we're going to condense all of this for you as best we can within this half an hour. Meanwhile, we've got to look at Boris Johnson meeting with the DUP in the coming hours. This, of course, is crucial because he needs those votes. And of course, the Spartans who so often follow the DUP in order to pass this deal in Parliament, the second step of this whole headache in order to be able to get something through before October the 31st. Yeah, absolutely. Sterling falls now uh, from that close to five month high as the deal chances fade. So uh, markets, again, kind of being pummeled, battered one way and the other as we get each of these lines minute by minute. Yeah, it's been great to watch the pound throughout the last couple of days. It really does follow every twist and turn as FX traders get so excited by all all of these developments. Uh, We're going to speak to Anna Menon, aren't we, in a minute? He's the Professor of European Politics and Foreign Affairs at King's College London and the Director of the UK in a Changing Europe. But first, let's go over to Brussels. We've got Ian Wishart, Bloomberg's European Government Reporter. And here we have Bloomberg's Brexit Editor, Edward Evans. Uh, Ian, let's start with you. Talk us through the sticking points as we reach this impasse. Um, the sticking points, as they've been for weeks, really, to varying degrees, is is what to do on the Irish border and how to make sure that there uh, is no customs checks between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, but the UK keeps Northern Ireland which, within its customs territory. How do you iron that out? Well, it's a very technical fudge that the two sides have basically focusing on and talks have gone on most of the night and they've resumed this morning. The problem now is for the UK to try to get the Northern Ireland Party, the DUP, on board, and that's where we are at the moment. Things could go quite a few different ways as we speak. Yeah, Ed Evans in our London studio, Bloomberg's Brexit editor. Uh, we hear that Boris Johnson is meant to be meeting with the DUP and that that's where he's primarily getting pushback. Yes, and a lot of pressure on them now to fold. Uh, For Johnson, it's absolutely crucial that he gets the DUP support. Though it's only 10 votes in Westminster, it has a far bigger influence on the European ERG and the hardliners in his own party. So this is is make or break for Johnson. Though we did see this morning Marc Francois saying that he wouldn't necessarily, or that the ERG wouldn't necessarily follow the DUP. Are, Are cracks emerging there? 
Uh, no, the ERG looks as though they're falling into line behind Johnson and the deal, um, but which is they did not do under Theresa May's deals before. So that is a that is a change from last time. But again, parliamentary arithmetic is such that with 10 votes in it, it's going to be very difficult for John. Without the DUP's 10 votes, it's going to be very difficult for Johnson to get anything through through Westminster. OK, uh, let's go back to Ian Wishart in Brussels. Um, Ian, this possibility of a second uh, summit then, uh, if the agreement, if it is reached, can't be formally signed off at this European Union summit, summit this week, perhaps there is another one. What, what are the noises about that question? Yeah, the most important thing from the EU's perspective is to ensure that any deal that might be thrashed out in the next few hours has the support of the House of Commons. Now, the House of Commons isn't going to look at any potential deal till Saturday, which is after the summit. So what they don't want to do, the 27 leaders, because let's face it, they've been burnt before, they've been burnt by Theresa May, they don't want to say, yes, everything is fine, we definitely conclusively sign off a deal at the summit on Friday, but then the House of Commons comes back and says, we'll reject it. So they're saying, yeah, okay, we can perhaps give some kind of broad political consent this week, but we need a strong signal from the House of Commons that you're going to approve it. And if they do, then the leaders will probably come back for another summit before the end of the month and give it the the proper rubber stamp. That's not for certain. That's just one possible scenario. But it's certainly something that diplomats here are talking about now. Ian Wishart, Bloomberg's European government reporter. Thank you very much. And also thank you to Edward Evans, Bloomberg's Brexit editor. Let's bring in Anand Menon. He's a professor of European politics and foreign affairs at King's College London and the director of the UK in a changing Europe. Good to have you with us today, Anand. So are we now looking at a 2020 Brexit? Uh, I think if you were forcing me to bet on it, and I would be very reluctant, I would say yes. I do not see how we get this thing through in the next few weeks. I think there's an awful lot of technical work yet to be done. I think it is encouraging that the European Union have adopted a very positive tone. I can only think if they'd adopted this kind of tone when Theresa May brought out her checkers proposals, we might be in a very different place now. So there's a a definite political will to get somewhere, but it's going to take time. Okay, uh, it's going to take uh, some time to to get that done. Well, and that's the one thing that, of course, isn't available now. Um, Look, I think it's you know, you've, you've written some interesting things about how this, uh, you know, that Boris Johnson is in an incredibly tricky position that um, that actually failure now could can kind of sow the seeds of his demise later on. Um, how much do you think that this is going to affect Johnson's electoral prospects? Well, there are so, the, the problem. The problem with politics at the moment is there are so many moving parts. It's impossible to think ahead clearly. We don't know when the election will be at the moment. As far as I can see, the Labour Party in Parliament is becoming steadily less keen on having an election any time soon. So mm-hmm. I'd say the odds are shortening on an election taking place next year rather than before Christmas. At the same time, it is absolutely the case that for Boris Johnson, having an election after the 31st of October, while we're still in the European Union, is dangerous because Nigel Farage will try and profit from that. What we don't know and we won't really know until it's happened, until the polling comes out in November after the deadline, is whether he will be hit as badly by missing his deadline as Theresa May was for missing hers. At the end of March, when Theresa May missed that 29th of March deadline, decline in Tory support was Mm. very, very fast, an increase in Brexit party support, kind of the equivalent in the other direction. If that same thing happens to Boris Johnson, then he's in dangerous territory electorally. 
So let's bring it back to this deal then. Uh, we haven't seen the contents of it, but there have been some murmurings from various people party uh, to, to the negotiations. Do you think this is something that could pass through Parliament? We're talking earlier particularly about the DUP and the ERG. I mean... I have enormous respect for people talking about this deal, but I have no clue because I haven't seen it. I don't know what it says. As far as I can ascertain, some people in the ERG haven't seen it yet, but have been told about it. So the devil will, as always, be in the detail. I think it will be incredibly hard for the DUP if this deal really does involve whatever clever phraseology there is to disguise it, if it involves a customs border in the Irish Sea. I think it will be incredibly difficult for the DUP to accept it. Yeah, indeed. And I mean, you know, it seems also quite a a compromise essentially on language rather than anything else, Um, you know, and also possibly even a Brexit in name only. Well, this is the other danger for Boris Johnson is for me, electorally, his period of greatest weakness is if he negotiates a deal with the European Union that hardline Brexiters can castigate as Brexit in name only or as a betrayal, whilst failing to get us out of the European Union as well. So if this looks like that kind of Brexit, then actually that could be pretty dangerous for the Prime Minister. We'll have to wait and see on the details, but the sense I get at the moment from all the gossip doing the rounds, the stories in the newspapers is essentially you're talking about what amounts to a Northern Ireland-only backstop, perhaps with a touch of Northern Irish consent added for taste. But that means a border in the Irish Sea. But amid all of this chaos, Johnson is still polling pretty well. Do we think that can hold up throughout whatever is to come? Well, as I said, we don't know. He's polling well because he has won back Brexit Party supporters that Theresa May lost in April and May. Uh, So far, those Brexit Party supporters have decided to stick with him because they think he's serious about delivering a clean Brexit. Now, whether or not those people change their minds once we've asked for an extension, I don't know the answer, but that is the big question of our politics today, I think. Mm. Well, I mentioned that the headlines are breaking thick and fast on this, and the latest from the FT's Laura Hughes in a Twitter post saying that the DUP has privately accepted Boris Johnson's customs proposal, apparently, but the major sticking point is still over a potential mechanism to give Northern Ireland democratic consent over any special arrangements. So that's from the Financial Times. So look, this is quite an interesting line that actually even the DUP may have agreed uh, the idea of perhaps a border in the Irish Sea, but it's the the idea of the, the consent. So Stormont having a say in this, and obviously Stormont's not been sitting, what, for two, almost three years? Yeah, I mean... There are, I think there are three issues at play here. Firstly is the issue of customs itself and whether or not the DUP are willing under any circumstances to accept that customs border. Secondly, the question of consent, which boils down to essentially whether or not you have a mechanism whereby either community has a veto or whether you do it by simple majority vote. If you do it by simple majority, the DUP are in trouble because, of course, some mm. of the unionist parties in Northern Ireland are more sympathetic to this kind of arrangement than the DUP are. And the third element of this, of course, is that the government has been negotiating money with the DUP, that is to say, cash for Northern Ireland. Uh, I don't know whether they'll come to a balance that is acceptable to all parties. The DUP are notoriously unpredictable on things like this. Uh, and I've, I've, you know, as you were saying, there's a Financial Times story saying they've accepted it. I heard half an hour ago from someone in Westminster that it looked like the DUP wouldn't accept it. So it's, it's very, very unclear at the moment. 
All right, Anand, stay with us. That's Anand Menon, the Professor of European Politics and Foreign Affairs at King's College London and the Director of the UK in a Changing Europe. But first, let's flick through these papers. Yeah, indeed, the most thought-provoking pieces in the newspapers today. Well, let's kick things off with uh, The Guardian. Uh, the Labour MP's lukewarm uh, ideal reaction, really, to the prospect of a snap election this year. I, I thought it was um, very interesting that when we spoke to one of the big uh, private Labour Party donors, John Mills, yeah. he actually told us... That that he didn't think that there would be an election or that Labour wouldn't want an election until next year. And I kind of raised an eyebrow because it seemed as if pre-Christmas was still the flavour. But no, there we have it. The Guardian reporting now that Jeremy Corbyn still prepared to vote for an election this year, despite growing concerns in his own party about that. Um, really, there seems to be this kind of shying away from the idea of trying to do an election, what, in the depths of a horrible November or December sort of uh, cold snap. So I thought that was... Uh, very good piece this morning uh, in The Guardian. That and look how Labour's polling. You've got that real mm. split that goes back to conference between do we have an election first or do we have a referendum first? There are a lot of people who want to get Brexit sorted in some capacity first before going to the people. There are a lot of people uh, within the Labour Party who are in leave areas as well and that's not going to play too well when you've got the Brexit Party hanging about. No, absolutely. And then just, of course, the latest line when it comes uh, from the fast-moving story around whether uh, Mr Johnson actually can seal some some kind of exit deal from the EU ahead of the uh, negotiations. Corbyn saying this is not a deal we can support. So kind of reiterating what he said. Mm, yeah. Then in the Financial Times, you've got some good analysis of the relationship between the Spartans, those in the Tory party who never voted for May's deal and the DUP. This is Laura Hughes and George Parker writing. Uh, they say, though, that Prime Minister needs the 10 DUP votes to pass a deal through Parliament, not least because hardline Eurosceptic Conservative MPs insist they will stand by the Northern Irish party. Then this morning, Morning, you had Marc Francois of the ERG telling Sky News it's not axiomatic that we would automatically vote in the same de- same way. So we can't make these assumptions. It- is just so unknown at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And you've got 40 independent uh, uh, MPs sitting in in Parliament as well. So, I mean, we talk about the 10 DUP uh, MPs and how influential they are, but it's also you know the, just the sheer weight of independence in Parliament. And even those, even those who were booted out of the Tory party, mm. the 21, yeah. you can't assume they're going to vote as a bloc either because they have differing ideologies on this one. And then we've got to bring you this Comres poll, which has been causing a bit of flutter mm-hmm. on Twitter, uh, presented as... Leave 50%, remain 42%, which is unusual given that all of these polls uh, in recent times have shown a, a, a remain vote ahead. But if you look at it, it's broken down. Those who are in favour of a deal is 30%, no deal 20% and remain 42%. So the leave vote is split in two. And Anthony Wells, the director of political polling at YouGov, is explaining this quite nicely on Twitter. He says that when polls split out different options like they do uh, here, they often find that leave options sum up to more than the remain one. So there are some methodology issues here and it's not as it seems at first sight. Uh, no, never is with the numbers. You always have to dig into those. So uh, yeah, good to get the detail on the Comres poll. Uh, meanwhile, let's go back to our guest this hour, Anand Menon, who is the Professor of European Politics and Foreign Affairs at King's College London and the Director of the UK in a Changing Europe. He stays with us. Uh, so Anand, talk us through your modelling uh, around Boris Johnson's deal, the deal that is currently potentially being hashed out obviously it isn't public but what is the modeling around what it might do for the economy and the outcome well first things first what is the deal and what we know i mean we spent a lot of time discussing the irish border what we know about boris johnson's deal and what we know from his letter to jean-claude juncker is 
the point of this renegotiation is not because he's unhappy with the Irish border situation. It's mm -hmm. because he wants a looser relationship with the European Union than Theresa May wanted. He doesn't want Great Britain to be included in any kind of customs arrangement with the European Union. He doesn't want Great Britain to be under any kind of EU rules and regulations. He doesn't even want to sign up to the so-called level playing field conditions that the EU have imposed in order that we are granted a large amount of market access. Mm -hmm. So the starting point is this is a far looser arrangement than that uh, envisaged by Theresa May. And so what we did was we put this through uh, an economic model that they used to calculate trade volumes at the LSE and came out with a set of results which are forecasts, not predictions, and they are forecasts simply for what would be the effect of leaving on these terms? What we're not doing, and it's very, very important to be clear about this, we're not predicting the state of the British economy because that depends on a whole load of variables. But what we have found is that the impact of Boris Johnson's deal on the British economy essentially falls kind of midway between the impact of Mrs. May's deal and the WTO Brexit. So it's significantly more damaging for the British economy than the terms of Mrs. May's deal. So many people who voted leave are people who are not in the city. They're not focused on the numbers. They're worried about how it's going to affect them. What are the tangible impacts of this deal for your average person in, in the north of England, for example? Well, I mean, clearly that's going to vary widely. But let me give you one example. Uh, Vauxhall at Ellesmere Port, uh, Peugeot, who own Vauxhall, have said their decision on whether to keep investing in that plant will be based on looking at our degree of access to the European market. My suspicion is that because one of the key differences between Boris Johnson's deal and Theresa May's deal is we will have customs checks, we will be exposed to rules of origin uh, checks as well, is that actually producing those cars... And remember, Ellesmere Port, I think they import 75% of their components and export 90% of their cars to the mm. EU. Their terms of trade change quite dramatically but between that, Mrs. May's and Mr. Johnson's deal. Yeah, but that is a very specific industry and obviously one that we all know is highly exposed to Europe. Mm -hmm. And I think that those on the Brexit uh, supporting side um, w would be swift to point that out. And also, I, and I know that you put many caveats around the fact that these are not predictions, they're forecasts. Mm -hmm. But also, I think that Brexiteers would be highly critical uh, of this report in the sense that the UK economy, as they would see it, has not done as badly, uh, even given the uncertainty around Brexit, as many economists had forecast you know, at the point just after the referendum. In fact, we've held up reasonably well. Well, let me say several things on that. One, yes, you have a point in that the short-term forecast that the Treasury produced in April 2016, saying if we vote to leave the European Union, there will be an immediate recession, 50,000 jobs will yeah. go, all that sort of thing, did not happen with an important caveat, in the time scale they had identified. I mean, a lot of those effects happened slowly. So the IMF have recently reduced figures, produced figures saying that the UK economy is in the order of 2.5% smaller than it would have been had we not voted to leave, largely because of lost investment. So there has been an impact, but you're right. That particular Treasury uh, uh, forecast was, was incorrect. What I would say is the kind of stuff we're, the kind of modeling we're doing, which is long term trade effects, mm -hmm. has a far better pedigree than short term economic forecasting. Because ultimately, what we're saying is this if you make trade with a trading partner harder and more expensive, 
there will be impacts on the volume of trade. That volume of trade will fall because it's harder and more expensive. If you do it with your nearest and largest trading partner, those impacts are going to be still more marked. This isn't to say that there aren't things the government can do to mitigate the effects. There are policy levers the government can pull, whether it's fiscal Mm -hmm. policy, whether it's migration policy. And it might be that some great exogenous shock happens. We might invent the first ever, you know, mobile phone battery that can last 24 hours in this country, which would be transformative. Lots of things can happen to the economy as a whole. But just this simple thing of cutting trade with the European Union, the impacts will be negative. So can a hotly anticipated US trade deal make up for that lost trade from the EU? It depends is the rather unsatisfactory answer. (laughs) But let me let me unpack that. Firstly, uh, distance matters when it comes to trade, and that's why we trade more with the European Union than we trade with with the United States. Distance still matters. Secondly, there was a study done a couple of years ago that showed that if we cut every single tariff that exists on trade between us and the United States the impact would be about 0.3 to 0.4% of GDP. So relatively small compared to the sort of figures we're talking about in our report. Now, if we did a trade deal that went further, that dealt with services, yes, there are gains to be had, but you immediately enter politically difficult territory because a deal on services will require regulatory alignment. Mm. That is to say, sacrificing some of that very sovereignty that we are reclaiming from the United from the European Union. Now, it might be you say, actually, I'd rather share sovereignty with the US than the European Union. But you then have that big debate about who oversees regulatory standards. Do you have an impartial organization yeah, yeah. that does it? So that all I'm saying is that politically, that is very hard to do. And politically, the US finds those deals incredibly hard to do. OK, so then aside from the trade issue, uh, let's also uh, go back to the kind of uh, the Tory party. I mean, the, the conference was just uh, very recent and we had a lot of pledges uh, from uh, Boris Johnson around hospitals, more police on the streets. What do you think the impact um, of those pledges is going to have in terms of public finances? Are those pledges that were clearly kind of focused on the electorate and on a coming election, what do you think, are they going to be deliverable? Uh, Yes. I mean, in the sense that, you know, borrowing to invest makes a lot of sense at a time when borrowing costs are very, very low. And there is a degree of fiscal headroom, as the phrase has it nowadays, that allows the government to spend quite freely. I think there are lots of questions to be asked. Firstly, how much of this money is new? Mm. If you look at organizations like Full Fact that have been through some of these pledges, they found that, you know, there aren't as many new hospitals as we might have thought from the initial announcement, for instance. Secondly, will government deliver? I mean, I remember back in July 2016 when Theresa May made a really remarkably good speech on the steps of Downing Street, pledging to deal with the just about managing to help the burning, address the burning injustices. It was great rhetoric. Virtually nothing was done to follow up on that. So the proof of the pudding will be if this government actually starts doing something. And the problem there, of course, is they have no majority to do things now. Those pledges should be seen as, in a sense, a pre-manifesto pledge before an election. And it's very clear what the Tory party is doing. They're trying to stave off the kind of attacks that Jeremy Corbyn used so effectively in 2017 against Theresa May about right. austerity and underinvestment. Anna Menon, thank you very much. That was Anna Menon, the Professor of European Politics and Foreign Affairs at King's College London and the Director of the UK in a Changing Europe. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? 
then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 